All right. Well, welcome to the first digging in of the uh, new calendar year. We have four that we'll be doing in this kind of spring semester. Um, and we're really looking forward to these conversations. And today we welcome uh, the Reverend Jane Filkin. Uh, Jane, thanks for being with us. I'm going to share a little bit of your bio. Okay. And then I'm going to turn it over for you to tell us more about yourself. Okay. Um, so Jane is the Director of Leadership and Development and Spiritual Formation uh, for the Campolos Scholars or Campolo Ministry Center. I sometimes get confused on which thing to say. Um, uh, and Jane studied sociology and education at the University of California, Berkeley. She has a Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a Certificate in Resilient Leadership from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and an Advanced Certificate in Life Coaching from the American Association of Christian Counselors. Uh, Jane is also a certified life coach, as well as having uh, years in uh, ministry. She served as for 16 years as the Associate Pastor of Discipleship and Community uh, at a large church in Colorado before uh, their family moved to, to this area. Uh, your husband, Scott, works for the University of Pennsylvania. And like you mentioned a little bit earlier, you have three kids. And let us know their ages again. 16. 15 and 12. Fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Jane and I met, uh, I don't know, a year ago um, through talking about ministry and Eastern University and collaboration. And um, there's been a kindred spirit as we've talked about spiritual formation and how to connect with young adults and the future of the church. And as people who just left kind of the large church expression to come to the Northeast and do things differently and how that's been both beautiful and surprising and healing and all of those things. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we go. Um, but I would love, Jane, if you would uh, just introduce yourself a little bit more for us tonight. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here with you guys. And Evan has, like he said, just been a really uh, dear ministry partner and had a significant influence on the students that I work with. So I'm really grateful for that. So I thought in, in introducing myself, um, I've recently just been reflecting on the my full name, which is Jane Elizabeth Watkinson Filkin. And I think part of what has been significant for me is just remembering my family of origin as well as my married name. And I'm fascinated by names. You guys all have children. We've talked about them and the naming process, the choosing of names is such a privilege. Um, I also know myself, I think most clearly for better or for worse in roles and relationships and, um, some of my primary roles in relationships. So I've been married to Scott for 24 years and we have our three kiddos. And so being a wife and mom are primary roles that I um, kind of lean hard into in the season of life, especially. And then like Evan said, I also, um, I'm just celebrating this year, 20 years in ordained ministry, and that's taken some twists and turns um, in lots of kind of unexpected, beautiful, heartbreaking ways. And uh, so just the kind of shifting nature of all that. But what I would also say that's been interesting for me as a mom, but also as uh, someone who's given names is that my name means beloved of God. Jane does. I think there are a lot of kind of John does. I think uh, Jed does my son's name. And um, I think so much of my own life has been settling into knowing myself as beloved of God and um, moving out of that place. So that's something I've been reflecting on. Thank you, Jane. Can you tell us a little about your faith journey? Yes. Um, Evan was gracious and gave me these questions in advance. So it's been fun to think about these things. Um, I especially love that you use the word journey because I would say 
that has been one of the greatest gifts for me is understanding this life as journey. And, um, so I just turned 47. We were just talking, uh, about, um, yeah, ages, your son has a birthday on Sunday. And one of the things I just realized, uh, I read an article that said 47.2 across the world is the peak age of unhappiness. It is the low point for, so I'm 47.1. Um, yeah. So, but it's an interesting thing to kind of get to, you know, halfway to 90, the kind of expected life expectancy and think about my own faith journey. And what I would say is I am in a season of kind of embracing the, um, unsettledness of what journey might mean. Uh, it's not a journey. It isn't a straight line. There's a sense of adventure. There's a sense of detour. And, I um, have, I thought that, I know some of you guys know Enneagram language, that I was a two. I'm, I'm thinking that I might be a three. Two of my closest friends uh, in the last couple of years have said, we think maybe you're three. But what, either way, I have known myself in my own journey of faith and life to be very eager to please people and to be very eager to try to do the right thing and to do it really well. And I think in part because of that, as well as my own kind of trying to understand this belovedness before um, doing uh, is that I have jumped into a lot of things fast and early. So I was married at 23. I was through seminary and a four-year ordination process and pastoring at age 27, had my three kids in four years. And I think part of that was a drivenness that was probably because of a lack of understanding of my own belovedness and settledness in that. So my journey has been, um, especially now at this kind of midpoint, whatever that is, Lord knows I could be hit by a bus on the way home. I have no idea, but, um, I just recognize that there's so much that I didn't know, right. When I was, got married at 23 and started pastoring at 27 and had three kids all at the same time. And I have had a grief, I think, about wishing that I had been wiser or better or made decisions differently, both for the sake of the people around me, but also for myself. And I think from this viewpoint, I'm at a place where I am able to have some self-compassion and realize it is actually the journey where we learn about the Lord and about ourselves and about how we uh, function in the world. And so that's kind of where I am now on this journey with the Lord of knowing, uh, being carried through a lot of things and um, kind of seeing with both grief and hope, uh, God's care for me and that God has been gone ahead of me and behind me, within me. Uh, along that journey. And I would say in this transition, so we got called to Pennsylvania from Colorado in the middle of the pandemic. It was very abrupt with a six-week time frame to say goodbye to a community of 16 years that we loved and a role for me that had a lot of identity connected to it. And um, that transition, I have mostly felt this leg of the journey, mostly like I feel like I'm kind of in a raft on a river being carried along where a lot of my life I would say has felt more like I'm trudging uphill working really hard. And the Lord has met me in some sweet ways in this leg of the adventure. That's been quite unsettling. Well, thanks for sharing yeah. that. Um, and I read an article recently that said parents with three children, so that's you and me are also, that's the amount of kids that are, make parents the least happy. So that's the same. 
So we're right in it. So I don't, yeah, congratulations. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank um, you. Shame about this journey and these ways that that things have shifted. Uh, tell us some about your work with the Campolo scholars, getting into that and, and what it is that you're doing uh, with these young folks and older folks, scholars. Yeah. So we've actually just changed the term to from Campolo scholar to Campolo fellow uh, in part. So the Campolo Center for Ministry is named after Tony Campolo, who some of you may know. I heard that he's preached here at this church and also used to do retreats here. But he um, is a Baptist preacher. He was a sociology professor. And he really has a heart um, for the church and raising up future leaders of the church. So the center began really to be a place of discipleship and encouragement for students who were pursuing ministry. So, and also a big scholarship so that they could graduate as they go into ministry with no debt, ideally, when they graduate from um, from seminary. So we have that seminary wing, and then we also have an undergraduate wing. And that primarily is a fellowship group for students who are um, wanting to grow in their faith and want their life to be surrendered to the Lord in any field that they're in. And it is so, I, I just hope my kids find something like this, but it's basically a group of college students who gather, we talk about rhythms, uh, semester rhythms, monthly rhythms, weekly rhythms, and daily rhythms. And Evan was part of our retreat, which is one of our semester rhythms where we gather for rest and renewal, spiritual uh, nourishment. And then monthly, we have events. And uh, usually it involves gathering around the table, lingering over food, usually at a professor's house. And then weekly, we meet for scripture and prayer. And the students lead one another in scripture. And they encourage one another. But it's a really warm, loving group of students. They encourage, you know, they're processing so many things in their classes and different disciplines. Then they come around um, the word and wrestle together. So it's just been a really beautiful um, thing to be a part of. And just, I feel like I'll, all I do is hold sacred space basically. And you just see the Lord work. And when I, I got to come on one of the Mondays where the students, I think it's Monday where the students just gather um, for to study scripture and be together. And I was like really taken by like coming into this space. And it was just like, so cozy you just created this really cozy space and these students were just coming in and you could see like the stress leave from their shoulders it was like you know when you would get home from school and you would like drop the backpack off and like fall into the couch I, like felt like that in the midst they of nap the day. In our office yeah. i'm sure they do <laughs> and snacks we have salty snacks and yes, like just snacks. creating that safety and comfort mm-hmm it was really inspiring to me and also inspiring of like what the church can and should be. And when the church is at its best, like I come into this place and I'm just like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. to be with each other and to see that with these young adults was just really inspiring. Mm-hmm. So you're doing really cool work oh, and I love thanks. the space you're cultivating. Well, and that's what the kids are saying. I want to be there tonight. You know, kids saying, no, not online. I want to go to my church. So I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as you've, we've talked some about rhythms here and the rhythms you're working with these fellows on, what have you found helpful for you and your connection with God, especially in the midst of transition and and change? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, So I do think that that language of journey has been a huge gift to me, just knowing life not meant to kind of take a certain, you know, this and then this and then this and the the freedom to know God in different times and spaces and seasons of life. So that's been a huge gift. Um, I think 
One of the things that has been really helpful to me in this season is a book called Transitions by William Bridges. And it's one of, he's no longer living, but it's kind of the a quintessential book on transitions. And one of the things that he said that has been so helpful to me is he said, all transitions begin with an end. And then you go through this kind of messy middle time before you can have a new beginning. And so often, and as a Presbyterian pastor, one of the things that Presbyterians are kind of known for is order. And so like, we are very comfortable in order. And when you think about transition and all of us are probably in some place in transition, either about to enter into one, into in one or about to come out of one. And, um, one of the things that another way of talking about that would be like leaving a sense of order, entering a time of disorder before you reorder or a time of like when you're have a clear orientation. And then when you go through a transition, there's a disorientation and then a reorientation eventually. And I think for most people, and especially if you're like a three on the Enneagram, you want to get through that disorder and that disorientation, like as quickly and painlessly as possible. And, but also what we know, and we see this language in scripture of desert and wandering and, um, I mean, some of this journey language, but even the sense of exile that that often is where God has the most access to us because so many of this kind of structures that we've put around us have fallen away in that time of disorder and disorientation. And so trying to just embrace, relax into those times instead of fearing them or trying to rush through them, I think has been really, really significant. So that's just kind of conceptually. But what's also interesting, Evan came and spoke about sacred pathways at our retreat. And I am like my most natural kind of ways of relating to the people and to God and the world are in relationships and in ministry. And I think the part of me that was really starving was for solitude and silence and quiet. So in this transition, what I've noticed is what's been helpful to me is a lot of those things that are not my natural kind of way that I probably was under nourishing uh, in, in vocational ministry. Super helpful. I um, I was just listening to a podcast and I don't have the source right now of the book that they were quoting, but they were talking about like some empirical research that's being done right now on like spiritual formations. And what are the things that like really shows transformation happening in people's lives? And these researchers said, there's really like three things that we know works all the time. And it's like contemplative prayer and it's really deep, close relationships with zero to five people and suffering, which you're like, oh, great. Um, mm -hmm. But that kind of being in the middle and getting through as one thing ends and you're going to the new beginning and we want to get to the new beginning. And yet that in the middle, God does so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, it's not exciting to mm -hmm. be in it. And yet it's effective. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think coming out of the season of Advent, one of the things we were talking about was being between the first coming of Christ and waiting for his return, that we are this between people where we also trust what, you know, um, I think maybe you even told me this, but uh, Tish Warren, Tish Harrison Warren talks about the third coming of Christ in the present. Mm -hmm. And so as between people where we know Christ has come and we're waiting for all things to be made right in his return, that that betweenness is actually the life of faith on earth. Like our whole life is in some ways that <laughs> that longing and that waiting. And so, yes, amen. Uh, let's take just a pause here 
And if anybody online or in person has a question or something they want to feedback on or something that resonates, I'll give you a chance to do that. I just uh, was curious a little bit about, you said you're a life coach and I was just wondering what that looks like for you. Mm -hmm. Great question. So what is a life coach? Um, so one of the things that the image the Lord has given me in this season for myself is that my ministry feels more like a mosaic. So before I had a job that kind of was full just as an associate pastor. Now in my work with students, I get to do that discipleship but then I'm also doing coaching with people who are not connected to Eastern and speaking sometimes. And so it's been a really fun season. And the thing that I love about coaching is um, a lot of how people describe it is if counseling is kind of looking back to kind of understand some of the things in our history that need healing, um, coaching is really looking forward and often is um, really seeking how to live kind of done having done some of that work in a transformed way going forward. But um, it really is just space of, I think, again, holding sacred space with people as they come. And often what I notice is whatever is identified as the deep need or the, the pressing need for people, there's often a deeper thing. Um, but it is mostly a space of helping people understand who they are uh, and I work with people who are people of faith and people who aren't. And so encouraging them to ask big questions and um, maybe think about things in different ways than they've always done that. Um, but it's really holding a safe space for people to um, learn about, ask ask essential questions about life and wrestle through some of their identities and gifts and, yeah, how they are in the world. It's a privilege. You have to use, yeah. So, so that you can hear you. We can we can repeat the question in here. I'm just curious, like how your work in like spiritual formations and life coaching, and then you said that parenting is a big role that you lean into right now. I guess how those intersect, and maybe what mm -hmm. are some practices or rhythms that you as a family have created? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have three young kids, and we're always like. How do we raise them well and hopefully not mess them up too much? Yes. Um, so just curious about that. Yes. So great. My my brain just has like this cacophony of like different things that I think of when you say that. So I will say all my three kids, one of the best pieces of advice that somebody gave us was um, you either tell your kids to build into their future budget a counseling uh, budget because they're going to need it and or probably you let them start before they need it. And so all of our three kids are, they have a counselor and they have somebody who kind of functions as a coach, just another outside perspective. And so that was a great, like we were just talking this week, my husband and I, like we recognize we're making an investment in that, that we don't do other things in part because we want our kids to have a place to process uh, on lots of levels with a safe adult who isn't us. Um, but some of the best parenting advice that I have received, and again, everything we know really gets passed on, right, by people who are ahead of us. And so my dear friend, Heather, she said um, one of the two of the best things that she has done as a parent is um, pursue connection and love consistently. 
and they sound so simple. But one of the things that I've noticed about teens is that there is this um, tendency for them to kind of run to kind of see how far um, they can go. And they kind of turn around and see like, are you still there? And can I still come back? Um, There's some biblical themes you can even hear in that. And one of the gifts that we can give to our kids is to pursue connection. And I think that's so how God is with us, that we want to run and we want to like see how far we can go and to know that God always wants to be in relationship with us. And so we've worked really hard, even when our kids, like it's really, we don't maybe like being in the same room or want to pursue connection, that gift of saying, we will always pursue connection. And I really like my kids actually. So they're, they're actually really fun. And I'm loving the teen years. I was telling, um, I was telling you, they're so funny. Like the stories that come home from junior high and high school, I just want to just sit and listen. They just are so fun. But um, loving consistently, I think is another thing that again, takes the Lord's help to be a consistent presence of love. But those two things, pursuing connection and seeking to be a consistent place of love has been bedrock. So those are pretty important for us. Um, one of the things that I would say that's a rhythm for us right now that um, is maybe particular to us because I pastored at one church for 16 years, I was feeling both for myself, but really for my kids, wanting them to see a life of faith and worship beyond what they have known. And so we are on a year long project of every Sunday we visit a different church and we go as worshipers, learners. Um, we really try not to evaluate, but just to go and participate. And then we always pick a local coffee shop. And one of my kids wants to have a coffee shop someday. So that's, that's a big part of our Sunday mornings, but then we all five go and we get breakfast together. I mean, sometimes it's just a donut or a pastry or a cup of coffee. And we sit and we talk about what we have seen and experienced and just having them be part of that process of saying, uh, what, what my hope was is that they would see, wow, when I go off and I leave our home and I'm looking for a community, I know that there are people of deep faith who love the Lord and who are seeking the Lord that worship really differently than I do, or their community looks really different, or the building looks really different. And I can go and be part of these different things. So just doing that together as kind of common learners has for us right now has been a significant um, learning adventure, I guess, for us as a family. So can I ask uh, what coffee shop you selected after you came here? We, you might have to remember, remind me because it was the place that has a really good toasts. May's, May, May, May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. May. No, it's like May's. 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 Yes. They have this amazing like brioche toast that they have this hazelnut spread on. It's so good. We got one as an appetizer and shared it and then somebody else got it for their breakfast. Yeah, but so many great places. They, they are not a sponsor, but we could consider. We will let them know. Any other any other questions before we go back to the programmed question? Okay. Oh gosh. What's the difference between a question. two and a three on the Enneagram? Yeah. So a two is uh the term that people use is the helper. And the primary need, uh well, the the vice for a two is pride. 
Um, but the primary need is to be loved. And so often a two, I mean, there are lots of gifts, often they're warm and nurturing, but often the shadow side is that you love in order to be loved or you become somebody's most important person in order to receive the love that you need. So that's where, for me, knowing my belovedness and having that uh, indicative of being a beloved and then the imperative to love out from that. A three is an achiever. So they can kind of move into a room and ask what needs to be done. They're usually go-getters, very um, active. The vice with a three is... um, can't remember what it is. I know. (laughs) But part of what a three can do is shape shift because they can say, uh, what needs to be done here? Or who do I need to be? I walk into a room, read the room. Um, And so, yeah. So it's... So is that part of my my sister's a Presbyterian pastor. uh Uh-huh. She says I'm a one. I totally understand. Uh huh. Yeah. But is that part of the journey that somebody can go from being a two to being a three? That's a great question. I'm not an expert. My sense is more that you have. Oh, oh. Yes. Sorry. Uh, thank you, Monica. Glenn was asking is it part of our faith journey if you know, the Enneagram, which is this inventory of <clears throat> giftings and personalities, is, is part of the journey potentially migrating from one number to another? I think what Enneagram experts would say is no, that you actually have a, as you learn about yourself and the things that are your driving needs, that what you're really doing is discovering who you are. And every number also has a wing. So a three might have a two wing or two might have a three wing, but it's kind of what those core needs are that drive our primary understanding. So again, not an expert, but to have two, my two closest friends say to me within like nine months of each other, I know, and I've like been part of workshops for probably a dozen years and always thought of myself as a two. And they said, I think actually maybe you're three. So it's been a really interesting uh, invitation again, to just kind of ask those questions and let myself not be freaked out by that. And just wonder like what some of those motives for how I operate and stuff. So, yeah. Thank you. Okay. So, um, I'm thinking more about your work with, um, these fellows, what are you learning about, um, these young adults and their connection to faith? Yeah. Great question. I think one of the things that I love most about, um, being around young people is their earnestness and their enthusiasm for the Lord and for their faith. And there's something just really beautiful about that. I think with children too, there's just this uh, desire to dive in and uh, run hard with for the and for the Lord. Um, I think one of the things that I long for for them, this is something um, there's there can be this dichotomy, I think, where I notice also part of the earnestness is that there can be some, uh, almost rigidity around habits or ways of thinking about God and faith. And, um, and then on the flip side, there can be this kind of laxness. Um, what's the word that I was looking for? Like a freedom around habits and executive functioning skills and some life things. And my longing for them most of the time is that those would flip flop. 
<laughs> that there would be in their earnestness and in their desire to walk with the Lord, that there would also be a freedom, a wonder, a curiosity about the Lord rather than a rigid, like, this is what it needs means to be a Christian. And this is what I need to do to be a Christian, to, to have a sense of freedom and wonder. But on the flip side, around some of the things of life, to have a sense of responsibility um, and a seriousness about being places and getting to class and doing some of those things. And that I think generationally there's been um, a flip in some of that. So that's something I'm noticing. I've never heard it articulated like that. And that's very helpful. And I think right on, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So you are a, you know, <clears throat> long time participant in the global church. What are your, what are your hopes as you look at the church and think about the future of the church, big, big mm -hmm. e church? Yeah. So I think the church in our country, especially seems to be going through some kind of reformation, uh, needed in many ways. And I don't remember who said it, but one of the most helpful, hopeful words that I've heard in regard to this was actually talking with young people. And as young people are kind of looking in and saying, why, why still be part of the church? Like what, what is, um, the church and why would I be part of it? And what this, person said was, as you see, like in this metaphor, the walls kind of crumbling, some of the systems and structures of church, some of the ways that we deal with authority and power and leadership, as well as just some of the structures and systems. He said, as those walls are crumbling, please don't let that make you wonder or doubt the foundation, that the foundation of Jesus Christ as Lord, that Jesus is the head of the church, not the pastors, not the denominations, not the systems and structures. And that was such a hopeful word for me. And I actually have that image has been really significant for me because what it sounds to me is that actually the walls need to crumble. And so part of my hope for the church has been not just that we would, well, certainly not that we would try to protect those walls from crumbling, but maybe even be people who help take down the walls. And when you think about the walls needing to maybe be taken down so that the foundation can be more clearly uh, experienced. And maybe there are walls that have been keeping people away from the foundation or structures or habits that we have that actually have walled people out. And so that invitation to say, like, let's, let's stand firm on the foundation of who Jesus is and uh, his word and not be afraid of some of those things coming down. And even how we think about one of the things I think that's problematic about that image is that the church is not a structure or a building. It's the people of God gathered in Christ. And so how we um, even rethink the embodied uh, and fleshed community of church rather than walls that do need to crumble. Thank you. I've heard it as another metaphor that's been really helpful for me as we talk about systems are being pulled down and deconstruction is this uh, like idea of like art restoration and that like if you had an image of Jesus and then what art restorers do is like remove all of the mm -hmm. other stuff that over the years or over the time or because mm -hmm. of vandals or whatever has gone on top of that and you're trying to get back to what is that underneath mm -hmm. and how do, what do we need to pull away mm -hmm. and that's a lot more hopeful for me and helpful yeah. for me when I think about what's going on and there is stuff that needs to be yeah. pulled away mm -hmm. what what's your concern about the future of the church. Do you have a concern 
Um, I think I think it is maybe the flip side of that, that the fear about I think I think so much of our faith, especially well, maybe I don't I don't know internationally as much, but I think fear drives a lot of faith um, and not like the holy fear, but just I mean, some of the fear I talked about of like fear of disappointing people slash God, fear of not doing it the right way, whatever that means, fear of like a journey supposed to look linear or, you know, in this, these certain steps. And so I think my, I think we're so um, used to a certain way of thinking about the church that I think it is really scary when the walls crumble and my, I think my concern would be that we either try to stop it because it feels like we're bleeding out or that we shortcut it or that we don't actually let that foundation or that original art like actually be seen and known that uh, there are so many people, right, who are looking for like, who is Jesus <laughs> and what, who is the church and, uh, I think we have things that have built up or gotten in the way that it's a, it's scary to try to make those changes. And I think one of the things that's been helpful for me is realizing every change in our life, <clears throat> even if it's positive, involves and requires loss. There is no change in our life that doesn't, even if you're getting married and it's something you've been looking forward to or retiring and it's, you're planning for it, you're anticipating it, there's significant loss that comes with every change. And so when the change especially feels like a deconstruction or something crumbling, we are just, it's kind of like that in between time. We're graspers, we wanna fix it, we wanna rebuild instead of let that, that time in the wilderness and that time of needing to depend on the Lord, uh, let that be and let that be long enough for that work to happen. Thank you. <clears throat> That's a fun question. What is, uh, what's bringing you joy lately? Yeah, I love that. Um, one of my habits that I've had since I was a little girl is journaling. And since I was seven, I have this big box of journals, but recently I've been doing something called commonplace journaling, which I didn't even know about till recently, but it's a way of, um, so my journal has like an unlined piece of paper and then a lined piece of paper and commonplace journaling was a way that people would <clears throat> kind of integrate all of life in their journals. So I gather like at this coffee shop with my daughter, who's like, this is the kind of coffee shop I want. <laughs> I tore, you know, a piece of the paper that her muffin was in and put it in there and wrote some of that about like, just as a little marker. And I keep art in there and clippings, like as we're visiting these churches, if there's something in the bulletin, or it's a way that I can kind of gather these different things that God is showing or teaching and, and then share my own thoughts about it. So poetry, song lyrics, things of beauty, leaves that I'll collect if we're away from home or whatever. And so just that has been a gift to me. And I think the quietness, the art, uh, the just noticing, right, slowing down enough to pay attention and see how God might be trying to and just seeing, just seeing, I think has been a gift. So um, part of that is um, art by a particular artist named Carol Oust uh, is somebody, her art has this, so the counseling work or the coaching work that I do, my uh, coaching is called between coaching. And it's this sense that we are between people. Like we, 
So much of life happens in the between, and that's where we're asking the big questions. But Carol's art is so, you can't tell if the person is about to like have the most exciting experience of their life or about to do something totally crazy that's going to wreck their life. Um, And it's like, is it exciting or scary? And so much of life has been like that. So just meditating on her art has been really great for me. And then I also walk a lot. That, That brings me to why we have a puppy. We've never had a pet before. So that was one of our family things. Like getting a puppy during the pandemic has brought this like little ball of furry love to our house that um, I never knew before. And that has been very joyful for us. So, yeah. (laughs) We need to know what kind of puppy in name. His name is Champ. And um, he is a mix. We, um, he came up from Mississippi and it was one of these places that, they don't have an actual shelter. So they just brought a truck up from Mississippi all the way up to Maine. They just told us a freeway exit and they literally, we just went to the freeway exit and then they, I'm not even kidding you. There was a big truck and I was expecting like a dog and they hand out, I'm not kidding you. He was 10 weeks old and they just literally a plastic bag of food, one paid with his shots and this dog. And they were like, here you go. <laughs> and then drove off to the next freeway exit. And, um, he's just spent, he's crazy. He's a, um, Australian cattle dog mix. We have no idea what's in there, but, um, he's really smart and fast and athletic and, uh, also a love. So he's just been a really fun first pet for us. So, and he has red hair and freckles. So I feel like he's my baby. I feel like I have a fourth child. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I, I'm, I'm excited about a couple of things as you speak, because you're using terms that are not of our generation terms, which is, which is great, because I have to realize what they are. But the other part of that is a, a sermon I heard some years ago talking about the DNA of the church, that the church, Big C Church, or the foundation of the church, thinking about it as, as DNA, each generation is going to tweak either with new vocabulary, new joys, new whatever. And it's kind of like as, as genetics has been talked about more in the last few years, it's each generation is going to flip those epigenes, those genes that turn on or turn off certain features of the DNA. <clears throat> and so every generation is going to read new things in the Bible that perhaps they didn't think about before, or they didn't notice before, previous generations didn't notice before. So the deconstruction, reconstruction is going to be a a constant process, this pastor was saying, which I thought was just, for me, a useful way of maybe being able to think about it. I don't know whether that's useful for anybody else or not, but I thought it was a, a pretty interesting way of deconstructing and reconstructing in a constant way. Mm-hmm. Um, that just comment one. Comment two was there's a fellow that someone introduced us to by the name of Richard Rohr, who's a, I'm not sure, I think he's probably originally a Catholic priest um, who talks about the second half of life and sort of after that 42.5 that you've talked about or yeah. the life of, of sadness. But, but the second half takes on a whole new distribution of bringing faith together yeah it's called falling upward which is i've i found eventually i've read it a couple of times it's just a very interesting book that some of your earlier comments seem to relate to so thank you 
I love that. Well, I would just say, first of all, your comment about the church sounds very alive and organic and journey-like. So when you talk about, sorry, I think we'll see you better here. Um, so I, I love that insight and it just sounds like a body, right? Genetics and, and life and how we, um, grow and are shaped and formed. So I just, I love that image. And one of the, one of the last questions that Evan asked me was what, um, book besides the Bible has most impacted you. And I wrote down falling upward by Richard Rohr and even brought a quote (laughs) to read to you because my, um, my, the question about life journey, actually it it was what I wrote out for, um, tell us about your faith journey and that second half of life. So I will share about that, um, in just a minute, but I love that. And I also have read and reread. It's one of those books where it doesn't matter where you pick it up. You just open it and it's like, okay, this, there's something, uh, so I love that. It's a, such an important book and it has been a gift to me too. So I love that. I love that you heard that. Um, so. well, thank you. But Monica, you had a question. Okay. About leadership development. It's a great question. So leadership development is in my title and what kind of leaders are we developing? What kind of leadership develop do they want? It's a great question. Um, so one of the challenges, there's a book called The Church Called Tove that came out recently. And one of the things that they really critiqued in the church is the leadership culture that has uh, become really prevalent in the church. And especially, I think, in like large programmatic churches where there is more of an emphasis on the leader and developing leadership qualities that can charismatic speaking gifts, uh, executive leadership things. And the challenge, it's kind of contrasted with, I can't think of his name, Eugene Peterson's model of church and leadership, which is much more a servant, spiritual uh, director, almost like a, a spiritual shepherd. So it's been interesting for me because I chose my title. And I chose my title in part because I knew that it's been an interesting move of being to move from a traditional church pastorate into now higher ed. And part of me was thinking, what if I need to leave the Christian higher ed? I want my title director of leadership development. I could drop spiritual formation if I need to, if I need to serve at another place to do development work or coaching. So I've actually sometimes regretted that leadership development is first in my title, because I think the most important thing for leaders of the church is to um, be spiritual shepherds and to tend to spiritual formation of an entire body. And I think especially this is a tension for me as a three, as an achiever, as someone with kind of administrative uh, leadership, traditional gifts, that tension of the, I, I mean, I've, I read a lot of stuff that says those things actually can mask a pretty uh, immature spiritual reality because you can be really good at the upfront things, but you might have a pretty, when we think about the second half of life, a container that isn't very mature or developed. And that's some of my own, I think, wrestling being such a young pastor, being such a young wife, um, that you can depend on some of the things that aren't actually the most important things. So I, re- so it's a really insightful question because I have wrestled with 
what kind of leadership then are we developing? And I think the most important leadership is followers of Jesus who use whatever gifts that they have, whether they're a one or whether they're a nine, to the glory of God and really have that surrendered, devoted life. And that's been a really convicting, it's been a grief for me, and it's been a challenge when people have some of the gifts that get celebrated um, more easily. I think the church sometimes can celebrate some of those things rather than um, some of the other gifts. Do you want to add? I don't know if you want to add. Did I answer your question? Okay. I just think I've seen that. You know, I think that's what I, I love about the work that you're doing. And it was similar for me. Uh, I went to, you know, a theological institution and I got lots of classes on information and speaking and all those things and no spiritual formation. Um, and then later was asked to like develop a spiritual formation class for students. And it was like, where was this when I was in this program? Mm -hmm. And so I was really just writing what I wish I had. Mm -hmm. um, and so I see you doing that with the, these students and it's like, oh, it's what a gift to help young people begin these rhythms mm -hmm. of character development and spiritual formation and discernment and practices of silence and stillness. I mean, we need that so desperately mm -hmm. in the church and in the world. So thank you. I mm -hmm. think it's just beautiful. No, the things that we're seeing. Other, other questions? Ryan's got one. Uh, Ryan is asking about uh, resiliency being part of your title, leadership resiliency. And that's not, that's something he's maybe thought of about for older generations that mm -hmm. think of them as resilient, but maybe not so much as young people. So what does it look like to kind of teach and develop leadership resilience? Yeah. So I did a course on resilient leadership at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, and it was so good. It was part of my own transition process. And one of the things how, that I loved is how they described resilience. And they said, you know, we tend to think of resilience as like the difference between a fragile egg and a hard walnut, like that we would think the walnut is like resilient. But the problem with that is that having a hard shell um, is not like, that's not going to be the right thing, like just kind of blocking out anything that would harm or permeate. Mm -hmm. And so the way that um, we thought about resilience in that, in that, uh, time together was they said it's more like a muscle and muscles um went <laughs> <laughs> were you talking about resilience and with muscles okay so muscles are a theme so it makes sense that you'd be thinking about resiliency so one of the things that they said is muscles when we are um like when we go work out when we're lifting weights what we're doing is we we're tearing our muscle like they're little so we're actually exercising a muscle and resilience is actually that process uh, over our journey of faith that as um, stress, like if, literally like a muscle, when you think about like the, the ways that there's healthy stress and that's how we actually become stronger. But there are also times when we have injuries, when a muscle would tear or burst. I mean, I've had multiple, um, one of my primary training grounds has been as an athlete. And so this was really helpful for me, but they said with resilience, a tear in a muscle, what it needs is rest and recovery time often. And then actually that place where it was torn becomes actually more generative and strengthened. So thinking about resiliency as not fearing or avoiding the tears or the breaks or the stresses, but knowing that when those things come, they are going to need rest, time, 
And the gift then again on this journey to say there are going to be seasons when the only thing that we can do to become more resilient is to allow ourselves to rest, mm -hmm. to recover, knowing that those places that have been the most vulnerable or the most broken actually will become more generative to the people ourselves and to the people around us if they heal, right? That's that's the trick that resilience like in its in its healthiest is when we have done that work to allow the muscle to rebuild so that it actually can be restressed and enter back into a normal functioning life. So, but there's a lot more, but I just love that definition. Um, so it sounds like that's been something for you. Okay. I want to give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about um, an upcoming Campolo event with oh, Sarah Bessie. And... I thought you were going to let me talk about falling upward. That's but... next. Yeah. That's next. <laughs> Um, yeah. So one of the things that we do at the Campola Center is we like to bring in outside voices. So Evan was one of those people who was like a, a voice to come and teach us, uh, kind of what's on the front edge that he's learning. And I don't know if you're familiar with Sarah Bessie, but she is uh, an author. She's Canadian, uh, pastor's wife who, I think this is her fourth or fifth book, but she's coming out with a book in February and it's called, uh, it's something about, um, oh gosh, I've written it so many times. It's it's about the journey and like notes, wilderness, field yeah, notes. field notes, yes, field for the wilderness journey and how like some of the habits that you have when your faith is going through change and transition. And one of the things that I'm just learning, I didn't know that much about her, but she does not really speak. She would much rather be writing and quietly and have her influence come through the page. But we must have just got her at just the right time when her publisher said, you need to do some book promotion. So she is coming and she almost never does this. And um, we have a couple of free events where she's going to be um, at Paoli Presbyterian Church. And um, she's going to talk about her book. And she's going to talk with Pete Enns, who is another biblical scholar from Eastern, uh, just wonderful people who have wrestled, who have been on the journey and who I think have a really uh, open-heartedness uh, to the Lord and to the ways that the Lord is working in the world and in them and a great way of talking about it. So you're all invited. It's March 18th. And then on the 19th, she's actually going to do a panel with four of our students who are going to pre-read her book and talk with her about the process of writing it and their questions about it. Um, so we're really excited about that. Fantastic. So there is a link uh, in our church email. You can register there. I've already grabbed some tickets. So if it we run out, we've got a couple. Uh, yeah, it's going fast. Yeah. So I would grab free. those tickets. You have to register, but it's free. So, um, and we had to cap it at. I've only got, I actually have one left that hasn't been claimed yet. So go online, get your tickets. And then if we, you need more, I've still got one. Uh, okay. So the question, what's a book? Yeah. Besides the Bible, we can't say the Bible. That's most impacted you. You've already shared us. Let's let's yes. hear more about it. Okay. So I love that um, other people are reading. Has anyone else read Falling Upward? Yes. Okay. Gold. So, so good. So um, I'll just, I actually took out a quote because it's been so significant for me. Is that okay if I just read it to you guys? Okay. So it says, a helpful way of understanding a journey is Richard Rohr's Falling Upward. And he talks about, uh, two halves of life. And he says that both halves have a primary task. And he says this, the first task in the first half of life is to build a strong container or identity. The second is to find the contents that that container was meant to hold. 
And he says, um, we all try to do what seems like the task that life first hands us. And this is that first half of life, establishing identity, a home, relationships, friends, community, security, and building a proper platform for our life. The first task we take for granted as the very purpose of life. And problematically, the first task often invests so much of our blood, sweat, and tears and years that we often cannot imagine that there is a second task, that anything more could be expected of us. And so when we think about what many of us are doing and raising our children and finding out what our work is and getting to be good at our work and finding a way that we engage with the community. And what he says is that we live in a first half of life culture where those things are celebrated. That's how we uh, identify ourselves. It's how we introduce ourselves, what we do and kind of who we are in the eyes of the world. Um, and it's largely that first half of life is about surviving successfully. Like that's what, it's like what we teach our kids, like how to like get through life with, you know, staying together. And so what he says is it takes much longer to discover the task within the task, what we are really doing when we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so he says, the second task is much more encountered than sought and few arrive at it with much pre-planning purpose or passion. And he says, various traditions have used different metaphors to talk about this differentiation, milk and meat, letter and spirit, juniors and seniors, baptized and confirmed, even in scripture, Peter, when you were young, Peter, when you were old. And only when we have begun to live in the second half of life can we really see the difference between the two, is what he says. And one of the things that I love about Roar is he's so pastoral, and he really apologizes in the book. He says, I'm sorry to tell you this. I'm sorry that this is the way that it is, but this really only happens through suffering and deep love. Mm -hmm. And those two often go together, that we often in the things and the people, really the people who are our deepest loves, that when there is suffering or loss associated with them is when this mm. is initiated in us. When we go through that tearing, when we go through that desert, when we go through the loss, when those the disorientation of whatever that loss or that deep, deep love that has awakened something in us that we didn't know previously, that is what begins that journey into like not just what is my structure and container to survive, but actually who am I and what what are at the heart of who we are. And so what he says is the two halves are cumulative and sequential and both are very necessary. We cannot do a nonstop flight in the second half of life by reading lots of books about it. Grace must and will edge us forward. No Pope, Bible quote, psychological technique, religious formula, book or guru can do the journey for us. If we try to skip the first journey, we will never receive its real fruits or understand its limitations. And I think that's what I find so practical about Roar as well, is not only this like there is more like in that deep place, but also to not despise or like I so often look back at myself when I think about the first half of life and I feel embarrassed and I feel frustrated about the things I didn't know or things that I did poorly. And what he says is you need that time and you actually need the structures. Children need, they say the people who actually do better getting to the second half of life are people who had structures and systems and habits in place so that they can actually know how to push against those and experience those deeper things. And so he says, like even our churches, many, like we think about membership classes and some of the structures that are just helpful for people to find their way 
to learn how to be um, gentle with the first half of life things, even when you have moved into a new season. So I imagine for you guys, that's been part of it to celebrate and to be a gracious presence as a second half of life person in a first half of life culture. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Jane, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you. So many good questions. Um, there's just so much richness. Thank you. Um, we are at an hour, so we want to respect everybody's time. But the last question is just how can we pray for you? Yes. That's the one question I had a really hard time answering, actually. Yeah. Um, so I guess I would um, like kind of in the same themes and flow of this conversation is um, to be kind of faithful in the undoneness of this season and to let that be, uh, it makes me teary even to say it, just in the wilderness, in the in the newness of letting God be um, both companion, Lord, friend. Um, and yeah, I think embracing, leaning back into the grace of God in the midst of, um, yeah, the journey. All right. Let's uh, let's close together in prayer. God, we thank you for your richness and your beauty and how you continue to reveal yourself, stretch us, and challenge us, and inspire us, and call us. God, we thank you for Jane and the, the wisdom and insight and the care that she has shared with us tonight. Thank you for this relationship and for the work that she is doing. God, as she continues to navigate the wilderness and the in-between, God, I pray for your closeness. As she is stretched, as she is exercised, God, that you would continue to shape and reveal and help her to imagine and dream of what you are calling her to in the second half of life. God, may you continue to inspire her and be her companion in Lord so that she might be faithful in the undone mm. with you, God, who are always faithful. We give you thanks for tonight, for this conversation, for each other. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or looking for ways to support God's work through our church, visit bcwc.org.